How many of you sleep with some sort of noise maker in your house? How many of you sleep in complete silence, nothing on? All right. Y'all are weird people. All right. <laughs> Those of you that sleep with some kind of noise maker, how many of you is it like a fan? You've got a fan going. All right. So how many of you is it like a, maybe an air purifier or something like that? All right. What about a TV? You may leave their TV on. We got, we got some, we got some TV people there, alright? Um, what about one of those fancy noise machines that you can pick like rainforest and frogs croaking and all that stuff? Anybody, anybody do that, right? White noise is this background noise that helps to clear out everything. If you walk into our house on any night around midnight, you are liable to hear all kinds of stuff coming. Fans and rain showers and frogs croaking and all stuff. In fact, if you walked into our house at midnight, you would think something was going on. And we have so many noisemakers going in our house that if a child was to be in desperate need, we could not hear it. And that's the point, right? Just joking, mostly, all right? White noise is a form of sound masking. It's this way to kind of put something in the background so that the rest of the distractions can be filtered out. The problem is that it is in itself a distraction. That's kind of the point. There are office complex, by the way, maybe some of you work in one, that have this this idea of sound masking happening within the office, that they filter it through the speaker system in the office, because otherwise it would be too quiet, you could hear every conversation, and people are less productive in that environment than having an environment where there's something just kind of underneath playing. I grew up. Not having to have anything to go to sleep. Like, silence was golden. And then I married Susan. Who had to have a fan going at all times to go to sleep. And now, if I try to sleep in absolute silence, I toss and turn and cannot even begin to think about getting to sleep. I have to have something underneath. I think it's a metaphor, a picture Of the way our lives really are. Because you see, the truth is, the sound masking, the white noise, is just distraction. And we are a people, a generation, a country that is addicted to distraction. We fill our lives with white noise, things that keeps our mind off of everything else going on, and we're constantly grabbing at things that distract us. Now you tell me, how do we do that? What are the things that we use to distract ourselves? Well, some of y'all can't answer because you're looking at your phone right now. You can't... Anything about that. So our phones, right? That's that's one thing, right? For sure, we'll talk about that more in a minute. What else? What else do we do to distract ourselves? TV, Fortnite. I heard some Fortnite down here. Some confession going on down low. Internet. Anything that we can grab at. We live in the most distracted age that has ever existed. I saw a bumper sticker the other day said, God loves you and everyone else has a plan for your life. 
You ever feel like that? Like everybody's grasping at what's going on in your life. And the truth is, we used to not be able to figure out what everybody else thought about our lives. But now we get to see it every day. There's a book that we read as a staff. I'll mention this a couple of times. A book called 12 Ways Your Phone is Changing You. It's a great book. I recommend it, especially for those of us in the room who are dealing with um, the coming age, the current age of cell phone usage, which is um, all of us. And so I recommend this to everybody. All right. Twelve ways your phone is changing you. In that book, Tony Reinke, who wrote the book, says that the average person checks their phone every 4.3 minutes they're awake. Or 81,500 times a year. Just to give you an idea, that means that many of you in this room will be tempted to check your phone Eight times during this message. Like eight times, that means a message only 30 minutes. I think you're under by about 15 what you normally do. We're shorter today, all right? And it's easy to see why, right? Our lives are consolidated on this device. Calendars, workouts, books, credit cards, news, shopping, weather, maps, Do you remember when you used to have to watch the 10 o'clock news to find out what the weather was going to be like? Now I just look literally at my wrist and it tells me. Cameras, pictures. We live our lives through the lens of our phones. This is not going to be a message about just throwing your phone away. Neither is the book. I do recommend it. But I thought about it because I was watching a couple of weeks ago um, part of Tiger Woods' comeback. Anybody here watch any of the Tiger Woods' comeback? He's been coming back, right? And I saw this picture um, of him getting ready to tee off. Do you remember when people used to watch things, just watch them, right? It looks to me, now like there's one or two people, but I think they're actually working, that don't have a phone on him. It made me think about how much we live our lives through the lens of that phone. Now, every one of those people, I think it's interesting that all that I can see there have their phones out and only a couple of them are actually looking at Tiger. The rest of them are looking at what? Their phone. When I saw that picture, somebody had written a story about it and they put this picture with it. Maybe you've seen this picture, which I love. This is at a film premiere. You notice anybody different in the picture? The lady right in the front middle. Everybody else is living the moment through their technology, and she is focused on the moment. It's easy to see why our phones have become such a part of our lives. I said they're calendars, cameras, pictures, maps, weather, shopping, news, credit cards, books, workouts. The GPS on my phone has 30,000 times the processing speed on board the navigational computer for the Apollo 11 that went to the moon. We're distracted, right? First thing I do when I get in the car to go anywhere just about is I put on my GPS, even though it's somewhere I've been all the time before. Just make sure I make the right turns. Anybody remember we used to get places without GPS? Like travel cross country with Rand McNally, our buddy. My father-in-law, Phil Jett, who's been in ministry for 50 plus years, 
said that in his life and in his ministry, the greatest invention for his ministry and life has been the cell phone. He said in his ministry and his life, the worst invention for his ministry and life has been the cell phone. We are a distracted people. I thought about this the other day. Uh, One of the things that I use for my devotional time is an app on my phone called He Reads Truth. And I I sat down to do my He Reads Truth uh, study on the parables. You just read the parables. It has a couple of questions at the end. It's a good time to focus. It takes me 10 to 15 minutes, good focus time. And I sat down and I got on my phone and I forgot to turn on the Do Not Disturb. And as I'm doing my morning devotional, suddenly a pop-up here and a pop-up there. And I clicked on one of the pop-ups to go to a site and ended up at another site that ended up at another site. And before I knew it, I was seeing 12 things I might have missed in Justin Bieber's honeymoon planning. And I was like, I don't know how I got from the parables to that. I didn't really see that. I don't think that's a thing. But, you know, y'all know what I mean, right? You end up down a breadcrumb trail. The average attention span for adults in America is now less than a goldfish. The average worker in America who works in an office spends 60% of their work week on electronic communication and internet searching. 30% doing email. A couple of weeks ago I went to a conference with a guy named Bill Hull who has, uh, wrote a book about the disciple-making church, disciple-making pastor, Jesus a disciple-maker, about how important disciple-making is. And he says the biggest detriment to disciple-making in America today is distraction. And he said, just take email, for instance. He says, when I was first pastoring, he's been pastoring about 40 years, he said the mail came every day at 2 o'clock. He said, I didn't worry about the mail till 2 o'clock. And at 2 o'clock, they would deliver the mail. I would take the mail. I would spend 15 minutes looking through the mail, responding to the mail, put it back in the mail for the next day, and I was done with it. He said, today, I have mail when I wake up and mail when I go to bed. Now, he said what he started to do is just pretend it's the old days. He didn't check his email till 2 o'clock. There's a big word for our distracted lives that we've coined in order to help us to feel better about it. We call it multitasking. But studies have proven we can't do that very well, if at all. So here's the question. Why all the white noise? Why are we so concerned with filling our lives with things to distract us? There are a few reasons. I think, first of all, because it helps us to keep work away. Vocational pressures that come, school projects that come. I just want to tell you, at my house, when it's time to do homework, it's amazing the number of other things my kids need to do before they start their homework. We've got to find the right pencil. That's when everybody in the house has to go to the bathroom. It's unbelievable. Got to grab a snack. Dad, I just need to get this. I need to get that. Before we actually sit down to do it, we're trying to push those things away. The, the average person checks their email every five minutes at work. They're trying to keep work away. Second reason we're drawn to distractions is because it keeps people away. You don't have to deal with people as much when you're on your technology. It prevents us from being able to have intimate relationships. One counselor says that intimacy comes when someone believes that you consider them a priority, that you have plenty of unrushed time, and you're giving them your undivided attention. And technology has pulled that away from many of us. 
And here's the big thing, I think. Distraction keeps deep thoughts away. We don't want to go deep into who we are, into our purpose, into what life is really about. Blaise Pascal once said, I have discovered that all of the unhappiness of men arises from one single fact, that they cannot stay quietly in their own chamber. They can't just be still and know. And here's the thing we know. Distraction does not lead to a contented, joyful, productive life. It leads to a distracted life. In fact, there was a form of torture in the Middle Ages where they would take a man and they would tie each limb of a man, all four limbs, to a horse and then let the horses go. And the French called that particular form of torture distraction. It's the picture of how many of us feel pulled in every direction without any singular focus on our lives. Here's what we want to do today. I want to look at the one passage in Scripture where the word distracted or the word we translate distracted is actually used. Does anybody know where that is, by the way? Luke chapter 10, verse 38. Luke chapter 10, verse 38. We're going to look at the story of two women who were entertaining Jesus in their home. Anybody know where we are now? Mary and Martha, right? Poor old Martha. Luke chapter 10, verses 38 through 42. The story of a distracted woman. It's just after Jesus has been telling parables. He's been traveling around, teaching all over the countryside. It's right before he gives the model prayer. This is in the middle of a teaching heavy section of scripture where he is going from place to place, town to town, group to group, and teaching them the truths of the gospel, the truths of the kingdom of God, the truths that his father sent him to teach. And in the midst of that, he has a little respite. He has a little rest. He has a little time when he is kind of pulled away. And in verse 38, it says, while they were traveling, he entered a village and a woman named Martha welcomed him into her home. Now, let's talk about that phrase for just a minute, because the truth is, the scripture teaches us that the person doing what she's supposed to do in this moment is Martha. Right? According to the law, and I don't mean like the law of the land, I mean like the God's law, like the commandments law, like the law that is given to us in Leviticus, the law that is repeated in Deuteronomy. According to that law, hospitality was of the highest order. It's one of those things that we've lost in our society. We're not as hospitable as the Bible calls us to be. But in their society, it was vital to be hospitable to strangers and to people walking through. And so Martha goes out, welcomes him into her home. Now we know from the rest of scripture that Jesus had a special relationship with this family. This is Martha and Mary and her their brother is Lazarus, right? And we know that even as they're getting ready to go into the last week, that three of the people that Jesus spent some time with were Mary and Martha and Lazarus. So we know this was a dear family to them. Now Luke kind of gives us the impression that this may be one of the first times they were together or an initial kind of moment. But what we have here is Martha doing exactly what she's supposed to do and welcoming him in to their home. She had a sister named Mary. 
who also sat at the Lord's feet and was listening to what he said. Now, here's what I want you to understand about this particular story. What, what we get here is that Martha welcomes him into the home and the impression is at first she along with Mary are listening there because it says also sat at the Lord's feet and was listening, right? It doesn't say she had a sister Mary who was doing something different than her. So you get this picture that he's traveling around, he's teaching, he needs a little rest, but he comes in. Jesus is always teaching. So he comes in and he's teaching while he's there. And the sisters are there together. But then, verse 40, Martha was distracted by her many tasks. And she came up and asked, Lord, don't you care that my sister has left me to serve alone? So tell her to give me a hand. No, I never heard that before, have you? Husbands, don't answer right now, please. Sir. Can you get in here and help me with something right now? Like, you know how many people we got coming over in a few minutes? It's not going to get done by itself. You're doing what in the living room? You're watching what? Anybody that's ever hosted a party, anybody that's ever had people to your house, understands the dilemma that Martha's in here. There's lots of stuff's got to be done because Jesus didn't come by himself. How many people were with Jesus? At least. Twelve. Right? Disciples are there. It's not just Jesus hanging out in the living room. It's Jesus and twelve hungry men hanging out in the living room. Jesus is teaching. Mary's sitting there. The picture that we get in Scripture is that he traveled with these disciples all the time. Now, I know it doesn't say the disciples were there, but it's understood from the story, from whatever it says, as they were traveling, as they were going, they came to this house. They entered into this house. They were welcomed into this house. And then when they get there, Martha's like, we got to feed these people. we got to take care of these people. When you remember the story of Jesus going into somebody's house and they didn't wash their feet, they didn't give them kisses, they didn't provide for them, Martha's thinking, we got to do all that for 12 of these guys. we got to take care of all of them. we got to do all this stuff. We got this that's got to be done. We got that's got to be done. We got to take care. We got to get the food. We got to get it cleaned up. I mean, goodness gracious, how much stuff is going on around here? And she looks out there and Mary is just sitting. Anybody here got any Martha sympathy? No, you made it. It's all right. It's a safe place. It's church. Right? Like, come on, Jesus, you know. Stuff's got to be done. I do think it's funny. She, One thing we know about Martha, she didn't hesitate to say what she thought. Right? This is a pretty bold question to ask Jesus. Jesus, you're not going to say anything to her? And you're teaching right now what you're doing. You're not going to talk about hospitality. Like, come on. Tell her to get Jesus. Tell her to give me a hand. And the Lord answered her, Martha... Martha, you are worried and upset about many things, but one thing is necessary. Mary has made the right choice, and it will not be taken from her. Now, there are a lot of places in the Bible where I'd like to have a picture of the reaction of what happened afterwards. Or further explanation. The Bible chose not to give us that. But my guess is that Martha either got in line real quickly or it took her a few minutes. 
But the point is, he says, you're worried and upset about many things. But one thing is necessary. Mary has made the right choice. Here's what I'll do. I'll give you a couple of things that I see out of this passage and then we're going to be done. The first thing is this. I want to make this very clear from the very beginning because sometimes we confuse these two things. Distraction is not the same as divine interruption. Distraction is not the same as divine interruption. Jesus was a man who could not be distracted from what God had called him to do, but was often interrupted in what he was doing for opportunities to serve the Lord more. Matthew chapter 12, his family comes and says, Jesus, come on, let's go. We got to go. We got to go. And he says, listen, you're not my family right now. My family's the one that's doing the will of God and I'm going to serve with them. Imagine how hard that was for them to hear. From a human perspective, Jesus was 100% divine, 100% human. How hard that was to say to his brothers, to his sisters, to his mom. John 4, it tells us that even hunger could not distract him from doing what God had called him to do. He's hungry. The disciples come back and say, if you're not eating, he goes, my food is to do the will of God. Now, I just want to tell you, if all the things that can distract me, when I get hungry, like I don't deal people well when I'm hangry. I just don't do it. He wasn't going to be distracted, but he also allowed himself to be interrupted. On John chapter 5, he's interrupted on the Sabbath day because a man needs healing and he heals. In Luke chapter 8, a woman with an issue of blood comes and touches Jesus and Jesus stops the whole procession. Now, do you remember in that story, maybe you do, maybe you don't, what Jesus was doing, where Jesus was going while he was on his way somewhere when the woman touched him? Where was he going? To heal a girl that was dying. And on his way to heal a girl that was dying, Jesus stops for a divine interruption to serve someone in need at that moment. Quite often in my life, the best moments in ministry, the best moment in my family, the best moment in life come from unexpected interruptions. The best conversations I have with my kids oftentimes are ones that I did not schedule in advance. Driving along in the car and a song comes on the radio and a question gets asked. And before you know it, we've gone deep into a good discussion. Best moments I've had sharing Jesus with people in the community or don't often come because I've planned it out. It comes in the midst of conversation that I'm having with people that a question gets asked that opens itself for the gospel to be shared. In my life, some of the greatest lessons I've ever learned have come through crisis that I could not plan, but were divine interruptions in my life. And even my own conversion happened because God interrupted my life and said, it's time. In fact, J.D. Greer says that a healthy Christian life is this, that we avoid unhealthy distractions so that we can be open to divine interruptions. And here's the issue that we see in Martha and Mary, the issue that we see that we have to come to grips with, that distraction is often good things in our lives, keeping us from the essential things in our lives. Every time I preach this passage, I have people that defend Martha to me on the way out the door. Every time in the hallway. You know, if it weren't for Martha's, nothing ever get done around here or in my house or in life. 
The point is not what Martha was doing was bad. The point is that Jesus was in the house. Something more important than the daily chores was happening in her house. And we let the less important parts of our lives squeeze out the essentials so many times. John Maxwell says this about our lives. It is hard to overestimate the unimportance of practically everything. That's kind of harsh, but true, right? We've talked about this phrase before, FOMO, the fear of missing out. But the truth is, most of what we fear missing out on doesn't matter at all. My granny used to have a saying, it don't mount to a hill of beans. I never knew what that meant other than it wasn't important. I've never seen a hill of beans in my life, but that's what she said. Look at Ecclesiastes chapter 9, verse 10. Whatever your hands find to do, do it with your strength, all of it, because there is no work, planning, knowledge, or wisdom in Sheol where you are going. Well, that's fun, isn't it? Y'all know what Sheol is, right? It's not good. It's not the good place. The point that he's making here in Ecclesiastes, which is a pretty depressing book till you get to the end, is the idea that everything we're doing in life doesn't matter except our relationship with the Lord. And what he says to Martha is not that what you're doing in and of itself is wrong. It's just at this moment, the distraction in your life is preventing you from the essential. Jim Elliott said this, missionary, great missionary, gave his life on the mission field. Wherever you are, be all there. Live to the hilt every moment you believe given by God. And I believe that for our generation, that Satan has realized that distraction is the way to prevent us from serving the Lord most effectively. And he is using it regularly. Because distraction captures insecure Empty and unprioritized hearts. Look at what he says about Martha. He says, Martha, you are worried and upset. Worried literally is a word that could almost mean distracted. You could almost translate distracted. It means here torn into pieces in many directions. It says you were upset. That word there means tossed along by like a capsized boat with no anchor. You were unhappy. You were unsettled. You were an anchored soul. Her significance came from what she was doing, how she was acting, how she was serving. Her significance was found in doing the things that she could do. And yet Jesus had told her that her significance should have come from sitting at, watching, listening, and being with Him. So what's the cure for a distracted heart? Well, Mary shows us. It says that she is listening at the feet of Jesus. Listening there implies not just hearing, but hearing to intake, focusing. At the feet suggests submission. And so the reality is that in order for our lives to become less distracted with less white noise, we must focus and submit. Focus our lives on what God has called us to do. 
Contemplate the fact that every time you say yes to something, you're saying no to something else. Focus on what God's called you to do. Think about what's happening in your life, how you need to move forward, and then submit to the Lord's authority, even if it means giving up things that do not matter in the long run. Jim Elliot also said, He is no fool who gives up what he cannot keep to attain what he cannot lose. Martha was distracted by her many tasks, while Mary was focused in submission. Let me give you three just real practical things to try. Things that I've tried recently because I came to a point when I read this book, by the way. Have I mentioned this book? It's really good, all right? Anybody want this book? This is a copy. Anybody want this one? Anybody want to read it? All right, I'll give it to you, Marna, afterwards, all right? Um, nobody wants the book. I see how much my influence has over you. It was startling right there. Thank you, Marna. I love you, too. Thank you. Um, three things. You can write these down. They're not going to be on the screen, but three things I think would be, would be helpful. First of all, spend at least 15 minutes a day undistracted with the Lord. Now, here's the truth. Fifteen minutes is a small part. It's a portion. But for some of you in this room, that's going to be hard. If you're at 15 minutes, don't go, Woo, I'm good. Like, then go to 30. Okay? Extend that time. Undistracted, I mean, do not disturb on your phone. Phone away from you. If, if, you, if you're one of those people that does your devotions on the phone, understand there are great tools for that. In fact, if you don't know a good tool for doing devotions on your phone, things like that, I'd suggest something like She Reads Truth, He Reads Truth app. They're great. You read the Bible, extended Bible sessions, some questions. That's great. But turn the Do Not Disturb feature on your phone. Secondly, if you're on social media, many of you are unfollow people you envy or get no value from following. Some of y'all know more about what the Kardashians have done than what Jesus has done. That hurts some of you because it's true. All right. Third thing. Track your screen time. You know, what's interesting um, for the last couple of couple of months, I've had the, the new operating system that's coming out for the iPhone in two weeks. Do you know what iPhone is doing now? They are giving it easy for you to track how much time you're spending on your screens. On the page to the left, it's going to tell you how much time you've spent on what apps for the day. Now, here's what I want to tell you. Parents, adults. I'm not telling you to track your kids' screen time, although you ought to do that as well. I'm saying track yours. And my guess is you'll be shocked when you see how much is there. And then begin to eliminate those things from your life that are distracting you. John Ortberg, who is a a writer and a pastor, one of my favorite quotes from any book he's written Happened when he was just starting his faith, uh, um, just starting to live for the Lord. And he wrote a spiritual mentor and he said, what rules, what what ideas, what suggestions would you have for me as I begin this path? And he said that the guy wrote him back one sentence. Ruthlessly eliminate hurry from your life. I would say in our society. That ought to be 
ruthlessly eliminate distraction from your life. Clear the white noise. Let's pray together.